So this morning, we're going to continue in our series, as Pat said, uh, working through really the Christmas season and this whole Christmas uh, series in a, in a unique kind of way. What we're not doing this year, right, is we're not trying to get, you know, really, really crafty about how to tell the Christmas story and like, you know, what, what was it like to, to see Jesus born from the eyes of an animal or uh, come up with some like cool Christmas movie lines that we use as like one-liners each week. No, we're, we're walking through the story of Jesus, but really what we're doing is we're looking at his whole family family tree, the whole lineage of Jesus, and we're highlighting the stories of some of the people that are a part of that line that led to Jesus. And what we're finding is that these are not people that we need to put up on a pedestal. We're finding that, we're discovering these are people that, that were unlikely, that they were undeserving of this responsibility, this opportunity, this, this place in history to be a part of the family of Jesus. That these aren't deserving people, but they're surprising people. And so the first week of the series, we launched from Matthew chapter one in the genealogy. We talked about Abraham. We talked about how he was one through whom God has reached to all nations and all places and all languages. That his plan is for all people. And that God used an unlikely man and an unlikely family in Abraham that God has, has called to Abraham and made a, pro, a promise to him, a covenant with him, that he, through Abraham, that he would bless him and that he would bless his family and that through his children's children, he would save the world of sin. Pretty huge promise. Last week, we talked about Tamar, a very unique story, a surprising woman in the line, in the family of Jesus. And we saw, we were reminded that our background, right, our family history is not what defines us. Our, our failure is not what defines us and that God is working in surprising ways. This morning, we're jumping into uh, remembering a man who's well-recognized throughout the Bible, but also throughout our conversations about church history and the, and the whole story of Jesus, the man David, right? And what we discover with David as we look at him today and kind of some of the highlights and lowlights of his life is not that this is a man that we ought to probably raise up quite as high as we do, but that he is surprising in how unlikely and undeserving he is of being a part of the family in the line of Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter one, we're gonna jump right in, revisit the genealogy just for a minute, the first five or six verses. And the reason is, is because I want you to see where David comes in the story and the family of Jesus. Matthew chapter one says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, he's mentioned early in here, right? The son of Abraham. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, who we talked about last week, right, Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, who has a description with his name, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know, one of the most fascinating things about all of this is that none of these people had the exact same story. None of them came and had the exact same experiences. None of them had the exact same way that God's, God's using them played out in their life. No, what God did is he took this diverse group of people and used them all together in a surprising way for one singular purpose, to save his people. And we see this all leading up to the birth of Jesus. But with David, he's so significant in many people's eyes and even in the writing of scripture that we see him talked about after, after 
the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, David's name comes back up. If we fast forward a little bit to Acts chapter 13. This is how significant David was. Paul, after he's been saved, he's been converted, he's been kind of ministering for several years, and he comes into Antioch, and he goes to the, the synagogue on the Sabbath. So the people of God are gathered in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is in Acts 13. And Paul comes in, and he sits down. Paul is a man with great reputation. He's been doing and influencing people for the kingdom in great ways. He's known throughout the region, right? And he comes into the synagogue, and he sits down, and the priests are standing up. They're reading the law and the prophets. Everybody Everybody's standing around them, listening to the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, right? All of that's being read. And then they look and they see Paul seated in the room and they go, this dude's significant. It'd be like me calling one of you out and going, for whatever reason, you're significant in the room. Stand up. And what, do you have anything for us to, whatever, just tell us something. What's on your mind? And what Paul does in Acts chapter 13 is he begins to walk through and sort of unpack the message of the entire story of what led up to Jesus. And if we look at Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, this is part of uh, Paul's response there in the synagogue when they ask him to speak. He starts talking about the whole line of the families leading up to Jesus. And he says this in verse 21. Then they asked for a king, talking about Israel. Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul, son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Saul was the king for 40 years. And when he had removed him, when he removed Saul, when God removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, this is what God said about David. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. That David is recognized as significant even after the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David is still called out as one who was recognized as a man who sought after God like no other and through whom Jesus' family line traces all the way to the cradle where Jesus was placed as he was born. David has great significance. We could talk about him for days, but what we're going to do this morning is take a moment and sort of see a 30,000-foot view of David's life, zeroing in on a couple of moments that are very significant in his story. And the end goal is not that we would take David and lift him up and champion him and try to become like him. No, but we would see the reality of David and where his greatness actually comes from. So we'll kind of rewind a little bit in history back to 1 Samuel 16. David has been born. His, dad is, his dad's name is Jesse, and he's living in this family. He's got seven older brothers, and then part of this family, uh, in the context, what's happened is Saul has just become the king. Saul has just been named king. He was anointed king, appointed by God. Saul was not a very good king, though. He sought his own interest. He killed people to get what he wanted. He did whatever he, he cared to do, whatever he cared to do. And so there was a little bit of disgruntled kind of attitude among the people of Israel at the time. And so Samuel, who was a priest at the time, God spoke to Samuel in order to speak to the people, much like a prophet, but this was a very spiritual person, right? So Samuel was a priest and Samuel was the one that would actually anoint the kings with oil. He would identify them, mark them on God's behalf. And so God comes to Samuel and says, hey, you need to go to the family of Jesse. I want you to go ahead and anoint the next king. It's a young man from the family of Jesse. You go have a sacrifice with them, enjoy remembering the Lord together, and I'm going to help you identify the next king of Israel. This is as Saul is king. And so 
Samuel gets the sacrifice. He takes a cow with him and he goes to the home of Jesse and he says, hey, this is what's happened. The Lord has told me to do this. I want you and your sons to come with me. We're gonna go sacrifice. The Lord's gonna give me clarity and direction. I'm gonna help identify and anoint the next king of Israel. And so as he does that, Samuel sees each of Jesse's sons kind of one at a time from oldest to youngest. And seven of the sons show up. Sees the first one. Wow, this dude's impressive. This dude has great stature. He has great appearance. He speaks well. He's, got, he's impressive to see and to hear. This is a dude of, of great reputation. Surely this is the guy. And God passes over that one. Says, no, it's not him. Samuel sees the next son. And then the next son and the next son, all the way down through all seven of Jesse's oldest sons. And none of them God affirms as he sees them, even though with his eyes and with his mind, Samuel is impressed by all seven of these young men. And so what happens is we look at 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord is, is working with Samuel to help identify who the next king will be. And so he's seen all of these seven sons. And then in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, says this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he, Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. They were standing in the place where the sacrifice would happen. They were waiting on the Lord to lead and they were not moving until God made it very clear. In verse 12, he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil. He anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So what we see is that God is marking David in a very surprising way to be the next king. Because you see, David, David was an unexpected but chosen king. He was unexpected, but he was chosen. Nobody around him expected for him to be the next king. He was unexpected, but yet this is the man, the young man that God had chosen to, in the future, be the leader of the people of Israel. And so Samuel anoints him, identifies him as that, and, and, and then he goes to work. David goes to work for the current king, Saul himself. Now, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation that was very surprising like this, where you've seen something happen in somebody's life and been like, I didn't see that coming. Right? Or, or, or you see something happen in somebody else's life and you think you deserve it more than them, right? So a promotion or a job opportunity and somebody gets it and you go, I'm probably more qualified from that. I'm not really sure what's going on here, right? And you're a little disappointed because they got something you don't think that they deserve or, or they got something you think you deserve more. Maybe when you were growing up, maybe it happened on a sports team. You didn't get a spot on a team and somebody else did and it doesn't make sense to you why they did or somebody you know came into some money because they had this great idea that you had three years ago, you just never did anything with it and you think you should have or could have be the one to benefit from that idea. 
what in the world? This is what's happening around David. People are shocked by the fact that David has been chosen unexpectedly to be the next king of Israel. Even his own dad was thinking this way, right? When Samuel comes to Jesse and goes, hey, here's the deal. I want you to get all your sons together. We're gonna go do the sacrifice. The Lord's gonna help me identify and anoint the next king of Israel. What does Jesse do? He goes, great, got it. Hey, you seven guys, you come with me. David, stay in the field. Like, he left him out. Why? Because even his own father, the person in our lives typically that maybe is our greatest cheerleader, the one that thinks that we could take over the world if we want to is typically our father, right? And so what does David's father do? He says, not a chance. He leaves him in the field. This is something that plenty of other people in his household could do. He leaves him in the field. David is this radically unexpected, but yet chosen king. And, and David though, here's the reality. The, the reality is, is that David, just like every other person in the line of Jesus, just like every single one of us, David has his flaws. And David's greatest failure that we understand or see through Bible history or through studying the Bible is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David at this point has become the king. He is the king of all of Israel, right? He's leading the people. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one, it says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. At the time of the year when kings go out to battle, David sent all his people and hung back in the comfort of his palace. You see, what happened is David, at this point in his life, for whatever reason, whatever's happening in his heart or in his mind, he, he steps back from his responsibility. He, he rejects responsibility. And as a leader, he takes the, the, the route of passivity instead. He says no to the responsibility to lead well and yes to the opportunity to be comfortable. And so in the midst of his weakness there, this is what happens with David. He's already in a weak spot because of his dismissal of his responsibility as the king. He sent all these other people out to fight for him and to die possibly, but he's gonna hang out in the comfort of his own home. No, he's in this weak spot and it says that he goes up in 2 Samuel 11, he goes up on the rooftop of his home. Now, most likely David's spot in the city of David or in Jerusalem was at the highest point in the city. From there, he could look down and he could see everything. Right? It's much like when Jesus is taken to the highest point in the city when he's tempted, right? After he was fasting and praying and the enemy takes him to the highest point and says, this could all be yours, right? Much like that. David is in this moment where he's overlooking everything that he is his. And he's looking out at it. And as he's surveying everything, he sees a woman taking a bath on her roof. Now, I wouldn't recommend that. Just saying roof slopes are a little bit different these days. It's a very different kind of thing for us. But bottom line is, ladies up there, she's taking a bath. Very specific reason in scripture why she is. She's cleansing herself, but, but she's out there. She's taking a bath. David sees her. He's, he has a desire for her, not just to hang out with her, but to, to physically be with her. And so he goes inside to his servants and he says, hey, there's a woman over there. I want her, go get her. This is the king who's already dismissed his responsibility. He says, there's a woman over there. I want her, go get her, bring her to me. His servants push back a little bit. They say, oh, do you know who that is? That's Bathsheba. 
She's actually the, the daughter of Eliam. She is the, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite who's out on the battlefield fighting for your sorry tale right now. Are you sure about this? He said, I want her, go get her. And so his servants, they go get Bathsheba. They bring her to him. They have sex and she gets pregnant. And so what's happened here is David has already made a couple of radically miserable decisions. He's walking in sin. And so what does he do? Well, the same, we kind of have three options usually when, we're, when we deal with our sin. We confront it, which is a good thing for us to do. We run from it or we try to cover it up. When we run from it, it's usually a denial kind of thing, right? Or we try to cover it up. Well, what David does is he starts to try to cover it up. So what's his plan? Well, his plan is he calls in Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the battlefield. He says, hey, man, I just want to bring you back, have a little conversation with you here about how things are going. Man, you know, what do y'all need? Do you need anything? How's the battle going out there? Gets a report. All the while, he also is thinking, hey, he's coming home from battle. He's going to see his wife for a night. This is going to work out perfect in my favor. They'll think that he was with her. And then she got pregnant from that. And then uh, he has this great plan in his mind to cover it all up. The problem is he gets, he gets Uriah back, has a conversation with him, says, hey, dude, now while you're here, go, go spend some time with your wife. Y'all just have a little, little time together and then you can head back to the battlefield, right? Well, here's the deal. Uriah is so committed to the king and so committed to the cause and the men that he's fighting with that he says, no. He says, no, I will not do that. I will not leave my brothers behind like that. I am committed to you and I will sleep at your doorstep tonight before I go back because I'm so committed to you. David's plan is starting to not work to cover up his sin. So what does he do? He gets Uriah drunk. And he says, maybe if I get him, if I get him wasted, he's then going to go make his way over to his wife's house. They're going to have some time together. It all makes sense to everybody. Well, Uriah gets drunk and still doesn't go into this plan that David has. And so David's next step at trying to cover up his sin is he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a piece of paper in hand, so to speak, right? It's a letter. In that letter, it says to Joab, who was the head of all of his military out there on the battlefield, he says to him, here's what I want you to do. Take Uriah, I want you to put him on the front lines at the most dangerous spot of the battle so that he'll die. Uriah takes his death certificate to Joab, hands it to him. He's placed in the front lines and most likely within days he's dead. David's plan's now starting to work out trying to cover up his sin. So what does he do? He mourns with Bathsheba, takes her to be his wife because her husband is now dead. When the baby comes, it makes sense to everybody. You see what David did? <laughs> he went from being disengaged and denying his responsibility to lust, to adultery, to deception, to murder. This is the downward progression of sin. This is what it does in our lives. Same thing that Psalm 1 talks about. Psalm 1 talks about how we, how we walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked. We stand in the way of sinners. Then we sit in the seat of scoffers. There's this downward progression of the wicked as we live in sin. James 1 says that there's this downward progression that we're, we're enticed by our own desires. And when our desires grow and give birth, it gives birth to sin. And when that sin grows in us and gives birth, it gives birth to death. There's a downward progression of sin always. And it always goes downward until we deal with our sin. And this is exactly what David did not do. So he's made all these terrible decisions. And so at this point, you've got a leader of the nation of Israel 
who is a liar, a cheater, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer. He's mistreating women. This is a national leader with great reputation. Mistreating women, lying, cheating, stealing, arrogant. Can you imagine a national leader like that? There's several in our world today. We can. Who would want to be led by somebody like that? Well, he had a responsibility and a role, and so people continued to submit to him. But what we see here in David is though he was chosen by God, he was not perfect. Now, David was a chosen king, but he was also a disengaged and fallen king. David was a disengaged, fallen king. He denied his responsibility. He pursued what he wanted. He sought to fix his problems by trying to cover things up and discovered there was no shortcut way out of his sin. There was no way for him to to fix what he had created. And he let everybody around him down. I want you to think about this for a second. Maybe you've had this happen in your life. Maybe it was somebody that you held up high from a distance. You didn't really know them that well, but you had, they had a great reputation. And so you looked, you looked up to them and you, you sought to be like them in ways to emulate different parts of their life. And maybe they were a hero for you. And then they bottomed out, failed. It's hard, hard to deal with that. Maybe it's somebody that you have a more personal relationship with. Maybe, maybe a mother or a father, family member, a friend, And you always saw them as your greatest ally, your greatest role model, the person that you wanted to seek after and become like more than anybody else in the world. And then they fail. I had this happen to me just a couple years ago. um, A man that I had looked up to tremendously and had invested in my life a ton, in my ministry a ton, uh, a man that I I did want to emulate in many ways. And um, uh, this was a dude that had, had given a lot for me had fought for me, had taught me tons about life and ministry. Uh, He had a major moral failing. That moral failing was a story of things that had gone on for years that nobody had known about. Um, Cost him his ministry. It cost him his, for a long season, it cost him his family. And I was angry. I was hurt. I was frustrated. I had felt lied to. I felt deceived, a man that I had looked up to. I never saw this part of his life. I saw how fallen he was in those moments, how broken he was in those moments. You know, most likely the people around David who had held him up so high as a great leader, a great king. This is much of what they were feeling in those moments. But you know, isn't the Bible such a beautiful story that in these these moments of failure, the Lord does these incredible things. For David in particular, it came through the faithfulness of another man in his life and David's willingness to let that man come in to his life. So David uh, had a man in his life by the name of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet, a man that spoke on behalf of the Lord to the people. And, and, and Nathan came to David This is after he had married Bathsheba, after they had had their child. And he said, listen, dude, I know everything. I know everything you've done and it's terrible. And you need to repent and you need to understand that God has consequences coming for you. And don't run from what he's about to do. Embrace it and repent. 
Don't run from the Lord, run from what you've, or run from what you've done. Run to the Lord, even with what you have done. And you know what David does? We begin to see turn in him. Why? Because he doesn't, he doesn't buck up at the rebuke. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't push back. No, he says, you're right. I will accept the consequences and I will turn to the Lord. And we see David's turning to the Lord in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we see David's, his cry of repentance play out. And you may be familiar with it. You probably heard some of these words before, but in Psalm 51, in Psalm 51, I want to read just the first couple of verses. What we find here is David's cry of repentance for what he's done before the Lord. Psalm 51 verse one says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And David demonstrates, he demonstrates a brokenness over his sin. What we begin to see here in David is yes, he's, he was chosen and he's fallen, but now he is a broken and repentant king. David is a broken and repentant king. He's broken over his sin. He sees the reality and the weight of what he's done, how it's harmed people in his life, how it's killed people in his life, how it's harmed his relationship with the God who called him to this very task. And he's broken over that. And then he repents in response to it, which means he literally sees the weight of his sin, acknowledges it before God, and turns from it into a different direction of faithfulness to the Lord. He's broken and repentant over his sin, even in the midst of his consequences. You see, what David could have done is he could have hardened his heart. He could have bucked up to the Lord and bucked up to his friend. He could have, he could have pushed back on everything. He could have blamed it on other people. He could have run from it, continue to cover it up. But no, he, he realizes the weight of it, acknowledges the reality of it before the Lord, and then repents and runs toward the Lord. Because here's what he knows. The only way out sin is repentance. There's no back road out of sin. There's no shortcut out of sin. <laughs> the Bible teaches us the only way out of sin is repentance. Is, is turning by the power of God to turn in repentance. The same thing is true for us as well. The only way out of our sin is repentance. By the power and blood of Jesus, we turn from our sin and run to the Lord. We can't cover it up enough. We, we can't deny it enough. We can't fight against it enough. We can't blame others enough. We have to, to deal with the consequences of that. And it can be painful for us at times, but this is what we see David doing in Psalm 51. And when David, what, what he does is we begin to see this change take place in David. A couple examples of how we see that play out. Now later, if you remember, right, when David was confronted, when he was confronted by his servants that he went to and said, hey, bring Bathsheba to me, when, he, when they warned him, hey, you need to know who this is, right? She's the, the wife of, of, of Uriah. She's the daughter of Eliam. You, you need to understand what you're getting into here. And he pushes back and says, I don't care. Go get her and bring her to me. Well, later, I've told you already what happened with Nathan. Nathan comes to him, says, listen, dude, I know everything you've done. It's a total mess. You've created absolute just you've created misery in your life and the others around you because of your sin. You need to stop running from it or trying to cover it up and you need to confront it and deal with it. And unlike what he did to the servants in his palace when he wanted Bathsheba, he doesn't push back on Nathan. 
he receives the rebuke. So he begins to listen to the voices of the people in his life that care about his godliness. That's evidence of change in David because of his repentance. If you can recall, uh, for David, when, when he was navigating through his life and through his, his, his leadership and, and all of those things, he, he refused to go to battle, right? He refused to go to battle. And he said, no, I'm going to hang out in the comfort of my palace. I'm going to send all my people. They're going to take care of business and come back. I'll just be here chilling. It'll be great, right? Well, in 2 Samuel 24, late in David's life, this is toward the very end of his life. He's very old. There's a plague that God has sent to Israel. And God says to, to, to David through a prophet, he says, here's what you need to do. I want you to go buy this particular piece of land. I want you to break, build an altar there. And I want you to sacrifice to me and the plague will be gone. And so David does it. Well, he goes to the man that owns this land and he says, hey, here's the deal. This is what I need to do. I want to, I want to buy your land. I want to build an altar and I want to sacrifice to the Lord. The guy that owns the land goes, dude, you're the king. Have anything you want. You can have my land. You can have my animals. You can have the stuff you need for the sacrifice. And David, instead of withdrawing responsibility and wanting a costly or a costless way to get right with God, he says, no, 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 no. The Lord does not want a costless sacrifice from me. He wants a costly sacrifice from me. Thank you for your generosity. But here's some money because I want to buy this because I want to do this right. I'm not taking the shortcut. I'm not taking the easy road. He said, there is no real sacrifice without a cost. A sacrifice without a cost is no sacrifice at all. And so David is being changed. He doesn't want the easy way out. He takes the costly road because it's the godly road in this moment. We begin to see evidence of change in David's life. And as it happens, we're reminded <laughs> of where that change came from. You know, the only people that can show grace are the ones that have received grace. Only people capable of showing the grace and the mercy and the love of God are those that have received the grace and the mercy and the love of God. I mean, do you believe this? Do you believe that you're capable of, man, just being a really good person and being really kind to people and giving people things and showing people kindness without the work and the help and the example and the empowering of God himself? It's an impossible feat. You know, we might be, man, you know what? I'm gonna take my neighbor some cookies. I'm gonna do that this week, right? Great, but if I do it without chasing it with grace when they get ticked off at my kids for stepping over the property line into their yard, it's not grace. It's just a gift. It's just a, some cookies. When someone gets the job at work that you want, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm gonna be gracious to them, I'll move on, but you can't celebrate their success, you're not being gracious. When your parent or your child mistreats you, speaks harshly to you, you're like, all right, I'm going to show them grace. But something inside of you will not forgive them. That's not grace. Cheap grace is not grace. Grace is costly. Grace is costly. It costs us lots of things. Comfort. Costs us sometimes what we want for people. Costs us our desires. It can cost us cash. It can cost us a lot of things. Grace is not cheap. It's always costly. And so as we try to wrap our mind around the grace of God, the question is, where do we look to discover the grace of God? And it's most pri prized 
picture in all of history. There's not a good Netflix documentary to try to explain it. We can't do a Google search on grace and get the greatest things. No, no, no. We have to look to the cross. We have to look to the cross to understand grace. You know, one of the most well-known passages that we read at Christmas comes from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, it's something we read oftentimes, not Song of Solomon 9. That could have gotten really weird. I'm just saying. Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 5 and 6. I'm sorry, verse 6 and 7, it says this. We're super familiar with these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And hear this. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts of hosts will do this. Well, we see Jesus in Isaiah 9, this prominent Christmas passage for us. We see Jesus as a reigning king above all kings over the throne of David, seated on David's throne and ruling like David could never rule, reigning over all kings and all powers and all of the world, but also a gracious king who was a prince of peace, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, one who can actually buy us back from our sin because he is without sin. If we want to understand the grace that God has called us to display to others, we have to understand where that grace comes from, and we have to look to the cross to find it. Even at Christmas, we have to look to the cross to find the grace of God. And so I wonder, how hard is that for you to demonstrate in your own life? I find it pretty challenging. But we can't demonstrate a grace that we haven't received. We can't, we can't show people the grace of God if we haven't experienced the grace of God. You know, David's story, it's our story. I mean, I think about my own journey. See, me and David have something in common, a lot of things in common. His identity was not, his significance was not found in being a king, but being a child of the king. Because see, what we find in Jesus is that he is the eternal gracious king. Where David lets us down, Jesus never does. Where David paves the way, Jesus finishes the way. And David's journey is just like ours. See, I too, I am an unexpected chosen child of the king. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, so are you. I guarantee the people in my past would tell you that I am an unexpected chosen child of the king. Several years ago, my dad told me this. See, my dad was a football official in my hometown and he was refing a game one Friday night and uh, he had an old basketball coach that I used to play against that came up to him. And uh, he said, hey, I was going there having some small talk. And he said to him, he said, hey, well, what's, what, what's up with Stephen these days? Where's he at? What's he, what's he doing? And so my dad said, uh, you, well, you know, Stephen's a pastor. He's at such and such a church here in town. And the look of astonishment on that guy's face. He said, a pastor? Stephen? Never would have thought that. 
Why? Because my journey is unexpected. The fact that God chose me is unexpected. And if you have a relationship with the Lord through Jesus, the fact that he chose you is unexpected. Why? Because we don't do enough to deserve it. We can't do enough to deserve it. But what's also true is that though I'm an unexpected chosen child of the king, the unfortunate reality is, is I'm, also, I'm also a disengaged, fallen child of the king. I fail. I mess up. I fall. You know, I've often said that spiritual formation or spiritual growth, becoming more like Jesus, if you track it on a map or a chart, it looks more like a mountain range than a boat ramp, right? Because we take three steps forward and then two steps back. Sometimes it's a step forward and it feels like three steps back. Journeying with the Lord. the king. It is my story. It's my only hope, my brokenness and my repentance. Lord willing, I'm broken over my sin. And then the result of me turning from that sin is that I can then be recognizing that I am totally undeserving of everything I have and that God's graciousness is my only hope. And may the Lord empower me to be gracious as well. His story is our story. And our hope is the same hope that he had, Jesus, the eternal, gracious king. And if we're going to display that grace, we have to experience and receive that grace. And the question I have for us this morning is, when's the last time you reflected on the grace of God in your life? If you have a relationship with him, when's the last time you paused to reflect on his grace in your life? And maybe that was recent. But is that moving you to want to display and demonstrate, to show that grace to others? You know, my wife and I, I mentioned this a minute ago, we made a bunch of stuff like yesterday, food and stuff like that to give to neighbors and all these people around us in our life. If I take a box of cookies to my neighbors tomorrow and then get ticked off at them next week, the box of cookies means nothing. Can I display the grace that I have received to them is the question. You know, we've talked about this Christmas through life point thing. Man, if we're going to bring Christmas to our community, well, we've got to be changed first. If I'm going to take the grace of God on display for the people I work with, live with, live next to, interact with, and my family, I've got to be changed by that grace. And so I would encourage you this week, take some time and reflect on the grace that God has shown you. And I will say that if in that reflection you realize that you've not experienced, because you've not accepted or embraced the grace of God, your first step isn't to try to go show it to somebody. It's to surrender to Jesus. But if you have, may he change us. So Christmas through life point isn't just a good idea but it's a gracious reality for our community. My hope and my prayer is that as a, as a church life point that we become the grace that we have received to the people around us. And in order to do it, we don't just need the example of a, of a fancy king with some low moments in his life. Oh no, we need the power and the grace of an eternal, gracious king. And that is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. 
that you're good. Thank you that you're good in all things, Father, and that we can celebrate that, we can embrace that, we can know that, we can believe that. But Father, I pray that we would more than just uh, understand that. I pray that we would be changed by that. And so God, would you change us? For those in this room that have not been changed by the power of your grace, I pray, God, that you would save. For those that have, Father, that you would continue to change us, that you would enable us and empower us to demonstrate, to show, to give the grace that you have given to us. And that, Father, that would draw men and women, boys and girls, all over this community, even around the world, to yourself. God, I pray now as we respond that you would show us and remind us of how good your grace is, how great and ultimate of a king you are, and how you are reigning over us. God, may that bring joy, not just to this moment, not just to this season, but to our lives and to the world, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.